0: This
1: is Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals. In each episode, we bring you information, insights, ideas, and interviews from some of the industry's top thought leaders. Head to mediasalesmastery.com to help pick the topic and guide the show.
0: This is Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals. I'm your host, Jamie Wood. Our topic this fortnight, understanding how clients buy. And look, it is a bit of a different approach to usual. What we typically cover are tactics, are strategies. You know, we unpack processes. We talk about very specific topics that help us excel in the profession of media sales. This episode is a bit different. We're actually going to delve into human behavior and psychology and really try to get to the core of what it is that truly influences a buying decision in a media transaction. Our guest today, David Roddick, partner of a consultancy firm called Kinsler. Now, these guys are really interesting. I'd encourage you to jump onto their website, which is in the show notes. They are a neuroeconomic consultancy, right? And it's going to probably be better articulated by Dave, what it is that they do in their area of specialization, but suffice to say, it's a very interesting area for anyone who works in media sales to really kind of get into. Prior to this, Dave has spent many years. Uh, He's worked in the role of Chief Sales Officer. He's worked as National Sales and Marketing Director for some of Australia and the UK's largest media publishers. So he's led big sales teams. He's run big sales orgs. Now he's working in the consulting space in this very specific area. Um, I'm really jazzed to get him on. Before I jump into the episode, one final apology and acknowledgement from me. Um, The golden rule of podcasting is you've got to keep your upload schedule consistent, and I promised one episode per fortnight for the rest of the year. I got knocked out with a pretty nasty sinus infection and I had a few cancellations on account of COVID with some recording, which has thrown me back a bit. So um, I can't make any guarantees that I'm going to have that regular fortnightly episode just because I'm chasing my tail a bit. But if you are listening to this, thank you for sticking by. I really do hope uh, that you were disappointed <laughs> to find that you didn't get a podcast. Um, without any more rambling from me, let's jump into the episode now. The First Five. Dave, welcome to the show. lovely to be here. Before we sort of get into this topic of understanding how clients buy, maybe give us a bit of a synopsis on your career to date. Um, and in particular, I'm really interested to know what led you to, to found Kinsler, which is such a unique Kind of consulting
1: business model um, one that I haven't really heard of before I'm afraid I'm long in the tooth media sales exec uh, started selling print media way back in the day in the in the UK when papers actually uh, were the the dominant form of media at that time um, and I've nearly collected the full set in my in my journey through media sales I've done print digital outdoor television. I haven't done radio, so I've not done any audio. So you've got one up on me there, Jamie. But um, uh, but I have done most of the other forms and and worked in. A, and I've been lucky enough to move around the world and and worked in over thirty countries in in with media owners. Uh, and looking at how media gets sold amazing amounts of similarity frankly between culture you, mm. would, you know china and brazil and norway and switzerland and they all have very similar challenges in terms of uh, how media goes to market so uh that's been a fascinating journey uh it's, take, it's ended you know, up with me in australia and and through that journey and through the evolution of media um one of the things that f- fascinated me was when programmatic started to gather momentum. So probably what ten or twelve years ago now, um, I started to talk to my the, the teams that I was working with and the teams that I led about how they could make a, a difference that that was uniquely human, um, and where, where machines were never going to to uh, automate the process. Um, and that's led me over the course of that last 10 or 12 years to look increasingly at how human beings actually interact with each other in a, an economic context. So when you're making business decisions or when you're transacting with one another or you're doing planning or you're communicating in a business context, what's actually happening biologically between humans that um, makes the thing happen? How does it all work? Um, and that's led me into to, to now with what I do The business uh, with with the Kinsler business, which is which is look at how your how neuroscience affects uh, economics and uh, uh, business settings.
0: It is a really interesting juxtaposition because you're absolutely right. There's so much technology innovation. There's so much automation. There's so much of what we do in this space. Really, I'm not going to say being outsourced to machines, but we're very much looking at tech and trying to identify how that can give us an edge and to really kind of look at the complete other end of the spectrum of how do we actually look at human interaction and context and certainly things like neuroscience and whatnot. It is a fascinating area because the topic we're covering today is really just around understanding like how clients actually buy. And I think, you know, stepping outside of process or product or pricing or go-to-market strategies and instead really looking at that human aspect of the media transaction is really fascinating to me, particularly when you say around the world there's a lot of similarities. Can you talk a little bit about you know maybe just broadly speaking you know why really having an in depth understanding of how clients actually make decisions? why is this so important to a media salesperson in
1: the current trading environment and in the next three to five years? Well, the way that I look at that question if you if you think about the ca- careerist in media sales in any discipline frankly. There are those who can get good at something, but if you want to get really proficient at it, so uh, liken it to driving, for example, you can drive for a long time, uh, you can get pretty good at driving, um, and pretty proficient at it. But if you, if the elite drivers, the people who are at the cutting edge of that craft, know what's going on under the bonnet, right? They understand the engine. They they can they can drive around a, a round track, come back into the garage, and tell the pit crew. How to tune the engine to optimize performance
0: um, mm.
1: and that for me is what's going on here with um with looking at at, at the, the human brain during a, a transaction it's It is the machinery that is forging uh the success or failure of your career sale or career in sales, so understanding how it works is probably a pretty smart thing to do it really is, and I think like we often refer to,
0: you know, emotional intelligence or EQ as being a skill that we really need strong media salespeople to possess. But that's such a broad, comprehensive, catch all term for so many different things. You know, we we think of it as if it's just one skill that you develop no different to how you be, you know, how you're good at maybe cold calling when actually there's a lot more to unpack there. Media sales mastery. When it comes to anticipating what a client is actually looking for in a media solution, like we do often think very tactically and very literally, don't we? We we have a process for how to do an uncovery. We 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 definitely qualify against their objectives, we go and craft that solution, you know, we come back, we, we do our very best to minimize any risk by making sure that our criteria and our accountability is there and I guess looking at that, you know, is that all there is to it? Right in this context, how much of this decision to buy from the client is going to be made based on how well we execute these technical aspects, versus how much is it based on pure irrational emotion?
1: Well, that, that's a that's a massive question, um, and you've, you've, there's a few things that you've said there that I take issue with. So, first of all, that's all that's going. Is that all that's going on there? Were you covered off in that? little potted summary very good one by the way of of how we might approach a a sales process covers an enormous and incredibly complex range of uh, interaction and trust forming um and bond developing communication so for example you talk about needs discovery so that's about that's a process of asking questions actively listening reflecting back um what you're hearing and ensuring you're capturing needs and uh, situations correctly, that is a that derives from a, a, a deep evolutionary biological need. So, um, it, it's helped us in throughout history to um, to understand and communicate our situation with others, and ensure that that is understood in order to cooperate successfully as a species. So we have an evolutionary biology which uh, allows which encourages us. To cooperate with those who seem to understand uh, where we are, who we are, what our interests are. So it's a very complex um, to, uh, set of things that are going on uh, under the skin there. Um, but getting back to your, 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 the point of your question, which is which is is it? Um, I think you mentioned purely rational, or is it is it there an emotional element? Um, it's not as easy to separate the two as you might think, because if you think about it this way. Every single decision that we make is, is fueled by an emotional feeling towards the outcome of that decision. Whether it is based in, you, in your conscious mind on um, rationality and reason, or whether you're conscious of the, the emotion behind it. And An example I would use would be something like um, t- going to have surgery or decision to uh, save for your, for your future, to, for, for your retirement. Those would seem to be very rational decisions. Should I have the surgery now in order to uh, fix my knee because it's giving me some pain and it'll probably be uh, set me back for a while? it'll There's a risk that I might die on the operating table under the anesthesia, but the pain and the risk are worth it because an, a year or so down the line, I'll be pain free and I'll be able to carry on playing tennis or whatever it is. Um, but that decision is based on your projection of, the, of a future event, which you then have a feeling towards. So there is an emotional response to the outcome of those logical processes that encourages you to take that risk, right? So what feels like an emotion, a, a purely logical, rational decision is actually driven by emotion. In the same way a saving for your future is driven by an emotional concept of what, how much happier you would be and how much more comfortable you would be. In your retirement, were you to save now, um, and so every decision you make, when it's whether it's a planning on behalf of a client, buying uh, one media owner over another, is based consciously or subconsciously on the way that you feel about the outcome you decide on. Mm. So, I mean, that's a
0: that's a really, really interesting summation there. And I've always been really fascinated by how much of our ancestry and and certain things are kind of coded into our DNA and they kind of manifest very differently in modern society. It sounds to me like there is still, there are still some echoes of things like that. Like as human beings, we tend to seek out the negative a lot of the time because it keeps us safe. We tend to avoid risk. Yeah. Um, we tend to post rationalize things to ourself um, based on intuition, you know, which is a very, very powerful, a powerful motivator for a lot of people and I think I've asked a very simple question in terms of of maybe oversimplifying this topic because what, what I was really curious about was, you know, at the absolute core of, of decision making, you know, do, do we have a, a type of client that really tends towards rational-based decisions? Do we have a type of client that can be very much, you know, being led by emotion? Or is it actually that there's such complexity that a media salesperson really needs to go into every scenario accounting for... You know, both of those factors needing to be balanced or, or navigated.
1: It's, it's not a question of emotion versus reason. It's more a question mm. of what makes the client feel more comfortable. And sometimes logic will make a client feel more comfortable than high emotion and, um, and making a, a compelling vision, which is full of excitement, bells and whistles. Others will be stimulated by the bells and whistles and, and less by the logic. So it's understanding yeah. those. But they both are about emotional response. Um, we, if you, if you actually look at, at, um, people who have the, the part of our brain that that, that that processes this stuff is, is, um, the ventromedial frontal lobe, right? If you have, if you have a patients who have had a stroke and had that part of their brain damaged and therefore can't process emotion properly, mm. they can't make decisions. And there's a famous case of a guy in, uh, in about, about 20 years ago who, Spent uh, a week, he, he held a reasonably high-powered job um, and he had uh, a stroke which wasn't diagnosed at the time. He went back to work and they found him having spent a week unable to decide whether to file his papers by, uh, alphabetically or by client. Wow. And he just literally had no value system on which to make that judgment. There was emotion forms the value system. If you don't have that, you can't decide if one thing works over another. And, you know, in his case, they were both equally valid. So there was no decision that could be made. Um, it's like a computer program going round and round and round in circles because it, there's no uh, point at which a decision uh, has a, a, a different outcome to another. Um, so everything has an emotional base to it. The, the point is, is your client more emotionally drawn towards reason or what, logic or, or, or the, the bells and whistles and, and dry ice and dancing girls? Um, I would always include an element of that, um, an mm. element of painting a picture of the future, even if that picture of the future is a, is a purely logical one. If you think you're a client and you've, and you've done your kind of analysis and reflection on, on what floats his boat or her boat, and you've concluded that it's very it's very logic based then being able to paint a picture of a very ordered structured outcome which has a strong business case and roi behind it that is still appealing to emotion on their behalf
0: that's the interesting area I was about to ask you about there's a there's a book i read many years ago um called pitch anything and it was basically best practice pitching and and he certainly doesn't go into the level of depth you're now going into but he does talk around Certain ways to activate different parts of people's frontal lobe, like in terms of um, how to how to set a pitch up and create that element of tension or that element of excitement at the beginning. So it's interesting. I, I think to me it sounds like you're going a couple of layers much deeper than that and very much very much not looking for a couple of ways to hack someone's biochemistry, but to actually just go, how do people actually make these types of decisions? What's their tendency? What's their personality, and how do we then adapt our approach to really be optimised
1: against that? Is that sort of, yeah, I guess we, a fair summation? We, we kind of, we kind of do want to hack their biochemistry a little bit. I mean, there's, yeah, yeah. here's, here's a good example. There's a, an economist called Paul Zak who did a study in the early part of this century around what the 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 single most important factor that that he could identify uh, in successful economies, prosperous economies. What do they have in common? Um, and he studied everything. So, you know, population size, access to natural resources, uh, climate, um, uh, standard of living, standard of education, and so on. The single most important and uh, and highest correlate between all of those prosperous economies was the level to which the members of that society trusted one another innately. So, mm-hmm. uh, and it sounds for a reason, right? If I trust you... But, um, if I have a higher level of trust with with just random strangers in the street, I'm more likely to do business with them. There's more transaction, therefore money moves more freely through the system. Therefore, it becomes more prosperous. So it makes sense. At that single commodity trust is based on the release of um, a neurotransmitter called oxytocin, which will be well known to several of your of your listeners. Um, not just as a as a neurotransmitter, but also as a hormone, um, which because it's it's produced also by um, Usually, your sex organs actually, because it has a role to play in sex. So, we want to produce oxytocin. We want to do presentations, have meetings that produce oxytocin in our buyers because that m- it motivates them, it drives them to want to do business with us. It makes them want to collaborate and empathize with us and cooperate. And it is the juice, it's the oil in the transactional machine. So, um, so we do want to hack their biochemistry and get them to produce oxytocin when we're in the room. That's really important. And there are little, there are devices you can use to, to, uh, to do that.
0: It's funny, you know, there's a, there's a lot of media salespeople I know who I don't think it's deliberate, but they actually just have incredibly charismatic, engaging personalities that I just, you know, that saying where someone just lights up the room and they walk into it and they, they leave everyone feeling amazing, yeah. um, yeah. That to me sort of almost sounds like what you're talking about here. It's the, the ability for somebody to come into a room and really sort of ignite that type of biochemical reaction in people.
1: That's not always the overt signals they're giving out. So that yeah. might be the, the, what they say and, and very largely will be. But it also is how they are. So um, there are for, for lots of physical cues um, engaging eye contact for the right amount of time, a little bit too much. As I say, oxytocin is a sex hormone, right? So if you, if you engage eye contact a little bit too long, it's uncomfortable. And that's why mm. it's uncomfortable because it's, it's, <laughs> it's doing probably more than it should. Um, physical contact. Some, a lot of these people are quite gregarious, right? They hug you or they, they kiss you. They make, they make physical contact. Physical contact's a big, big, um, uh, uh, generator of, of neurocoupling and getting, uh, oxytocin release. Um, that, they they also, give off signals of their own biochemistry through their pheromones. So being in the same room with people who are naturally gregarious, confident, and have high charisma makes you feel relaxed. Oxytocin is released when mammals feel it's safe to relax. So meerkats, when they're grooming one another, social animals, when they're, um, when they're lying in groups and they're lying on top of each other, that physical contact, it makes everyone feel safe. Oxytocin is released, lots of cooperation, Um, so there are lots of biological things going on that a gregarious person who as you say lights up the room is doing beyond just what they say so is that that type
0: of um, dynamic around you know a big group is that rooted in just the safety thing do you think like the safety numbers or is it more around there's like these biochemical incentives for us to collaborate and to be social creatures and to and to kind of nurture and build trust and relationships and and cooperate with one another
1: yeah it's it's in our our evolution if you think of how we've become a successful species um we 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 obviously congregate in, in groups um and those those groups could advance more progressively more productively if they worked in cooperation so you know if I can trust you to look after my children while I go hunting the chances are I'll be more successful than if I have to drag the kids along Um, you know if we can if I can sleep while you watch the camp uh, and I can trust you to do the same uh, then you know this is this is going to advance the species and then if we can work if we can trust one another and feel safe with each other then we can work together collaboratively on mutual interests we can fight Common foe we can bring down prey that one of us on our own could not do, so these evolutionary drivers to um to spot markers that mean it's safe to work with someone and then encourage us to cooperate and collaborate and trust another person they have helped our species become successful so they've mm-hmm. been they've been reinforced by evolution
0: that's actually um sorry to cut your train of thought off but I share this trivia a lot. Have you have you heard, or do you have any theory as to why we apparently sleep better when it's raining? <laughs> no, I've I've never heard that. So this this one I thought was a really good demonstration. So the theory is the reason why we often have a more sound night's sleep when it's raining outside is because in our Prehistori- you know, our prehistoric ancestors, um, we were very prone at nighttime to being attacked um, by vicious animals while we were asleep. So we had no no defense mechanism a lot of the time. And so the theory was that when it was raining, we could sleep better because we knew that prey wouldn't be out hunting us. Um, and here we are all these years later, and apparently this is still something that's sort of... I guess it demonstrates the point that uh, you know you can't outrun your
1: biology or your evolution in many ways. Yeah, I mean... What are what are we uh, species at twenty thousand or so years old or something? It's it's we're incredibly young, um, so to think that um, when we've been civilized for what four four thousand years, something like that. So um, to think that we have adapted in our evolution uh, beyond what kept us uh, successful in our in our pri- primeval primordial. Um, uh, evolution is, is is ludicrous we're still that 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 same animal we just happen to to have extremely high processing brains
0: somebody and this is where i'm trying to sort of bring this back to something that is maybe applicable or tangible for the audience to take away <laughs> to to my mind and no please don't take that as anything other than complimentary because it's a really interesting area to get into and and i'm just really interested to know what, be, what might be the one or two kind of key takeaways above all else, that if I'm somebody selling media in the year 2021, um, you know, that I should really, really give consideration to? Is it about being, you know, doing things to reinforce your trustworthiness? Is it about um, really working hard to understand somebody's potential fears and or bias biases? Is it about really kind of building out that level of um collaboration and showing that you're a team player and you're acting outside of self interest like is there is there anything that you're distilling a lot of this down to to say these are some of the things that absolutely in a business
1: context in media sales have to be at the forefront of what you're doing yeah i th- I think our world of course is dominated by the pandemic, um, whether it's whether, whatever stage you are in terms of being released from lockdown, it's nevertheless it's casting a long shadow over how we live our lives and how we apply our trade, um, and we will continue to do so for uh, for many years to come. I think in terms of how we work, and I think um, that has had a major impact on our ability to generate trust and. Um the kind of fundamentals of of influence and rapport that really have always underpinned uh media sales relationships we 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 used to get together in rooms um or over lunch and we would um we we would be able to exchange uh, nonverbal signals that would encourage that that trust between us um and develop relationships on which we then could build an economic transaction, successful a successful economic transaction together. A lot of those avenues have been denied us, and so it's much more difficult. You know, we do a lot of work um, around how people are feeling in um, the, the the virtual meeting world. Seventy one percent of 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 uh, the the people who've responded to our we've done this survey forty nine times now, and seventy one percent of people who respond tell us that it is more difficult to form. Uh, relationships and get to know someone well on virtual calls than it is face to face, and eighty-six yeah. percent of people admit to, to multitasking on virtual calls, doing doing things in in meetings virtually that they would not do face to face. Thirty-five percent of those people admit to doing that more than half the time. That's self-confessed. I do that. I more than half the time I'm doing something else while I'm having a meeting. Yeah. That bad behavior. The reason I do that in a virtual meeting rather than in ways that I would not do face to face is, is because I'm less, I'm less motivated, I'm less driven by my biology to behave well. I just, the rules are just not there for me. They're not impinging upon me to make sure that I behave well and cooperate and collaborate with you. So in 2021 um, and 2022, Media salespeople have to be really selective as, as we come into a more hybrid world of how they use virtual virtual meetings and how they use in-person meetings. They yeah. they are very there are hacks and ways you can use virtual meetings to generate the same outcomes, but they're, it's it's more difficult and you have to structure it in a different way. And 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 I would really encourage uh, media sales folk who have not met their buyer. Uh, before to do so face to face the first time you meet because it's it's a really important uh, exchange of um, physical chemistry uh, that will underpin your relationship from that point forward. It's it's so important. I mean,
0: I'm I'm very much of the view that you know virtual selling or these video calls it's a forced adaptation, right? And a lot of people are very much trying to make the best of it, and there are certainly some things that logically makes sense. Yes, of course, I'm saving commute time. I'm, you know, it's maybe easier to get access to 30 minutes with that person. But to your point, it's like the social contract is missing. Yeah. You don't have those social norms that people have to abide by like they do in a face to face setting. And I really do worry that, um, you know, this this kind of video calling currency
1: that we're in, it's actually very low return um, as an activity. Yes, it is, um, and what's really tempting. So, two things happen. One of which seems beneficial, but can be dangerous. So, um, first of all, we all do back to back to back to back meetings, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which in itself has has, a, has an effect on us. But, but parking that for a second, um, you, you you find that actually access to the diary. I don't know whether you found this. But clients you couldn't get to see before because they would never have dragged you across town for 15 minutes. Now, you know, okay, I'll, I'll take a 15-minute meeting. I'll cram it in between the other two because yeah. you haven't really had to go out of your way to have that meeting. So you can get a little bit more access, actually, sometimes. Um, but the danger is that you then jump, because it's only 15 minutes long, you jump straight into the pitch. So... You know i've only got 15 minutes so i'm going to put a slide deck up and we're going to go through it i'm going to give you my my best elevator pitch and i'm going to you know, talk about how brilliantly we're going to transform your campaign into something which is gener- going to re- generate you know five ten x return on investment great but that that whole process is designed for a face-to-face meeting where again you're exchanging non-verbal signals when it when you haven't got that context it's very dangerous to jump straight into the pitch you have to keep yeah. the interaction far, far higher and more frequent um, on, a, on a video call or virtual context. So um, the access might be greater, but the chance of engaging and moving and progressing towards the sale is that much more difficult. Is there something to be said for – I mean,
0: this is one of the things that I've been working with a bit with some of the, the members of my team is we're very fortunate in Brisbane – that we still can have face to face interaction. Granted, it has to often be at a cafe or in a in a COVID compliant um, venue as opposed to a boardroom. But the reframe that I'm trying to kind of put in everyone's mind is: don't think of a video call as a substitute for a face to face meeting. Think of it as potentially a better way of communicating where we would typically use the phone or email. So you know, for example. Rather than going back with an email littered with 20 questions for a client uncovery, if you've got a brief, maybe they could indulge you with 10 to 15 minutes for a short, sharp video call just to unpack that brief in a way that's maybe a little bit less cumbersome on behalf of the client. But when it comes to actually building the relationship or presenting the solution, really push if you can for that face-to-face. Um, so sort of, you know, almost trying to hack the the technology and go, how do we kind of optimise this hybrid world and get the best out of the technology and the face to face and create sort of a more, I would say, just a richer
1: experience in general?
0: Is that sort of an area you're finding people are trying to, 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 to get a bit better at? Or? that's
1: that's a great way of looking at it, Jamie, and a, and a really good summary. Um, I think the other thing to bear in mind is is these. So I think your point there is is partly that these technologies are not interchangeable. Um, they have certain Parts of the process in which they they play um, a, uh, a a more suitable role, um, but they're not. You can't just substitute one for the other. And I would I would include the telephone in that. Um, one of the things is, one of the ways of communicating that's, that really is effective in in creating transactions and creating uh, encouraging people to do business together is um, that there's a narrative arc is a, is a storytelling. A framework yeah. and, and this has long been known and people as told well to structure their presentations as stories and so on and this is this is all based on scientific fact it's a um there's a complex neuroscience behind it but it's really really powerful um you tend to do that more naturally on the telephone than you do in other forms of communication because of just the way because you have no visual stimulus so you tend to yeah. tell a story more naturally on the telephone and you also tend to interact with more frequency you do get people who bend your ear for half an hour without taking breath. You do get those people, but but most of us pause for breath, and allow a normal exchange of, of views, and so mammals release oxytocin, the the, the trust hormone, when they verbalise. So keeping keeping your buyer talking is really important, and that storytelling thing does come more naturally when you haven't got visuals to rely on. So telephone, don't discount telephone. Yeah, no, that's a that's a, a fantastic
0: fantastic insight there. And I think, you know, it seems to be the case, particularly in a prospecting world. And when it comes to, you know, direct selling of media, the phone just continues to be the, what what seems to be unanimously kind of agreed as the best way to generate new business or to forge a new client relationship. Um, at least that's, at least that seems to be, you know, the primary means of still establishing a relationship. Is there do you share that view? And if so, do you think that that very much still comes down to the ability to, um, to engage a buyer differently with that phone call versus maybe trying to set up a Teams call or trying to connect with them via a LinkedIn DM or something like that?
1: Yeah, I th- I think the form of words and the and, and as I say the, the 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 nature of dialogue is quite important in forming those relationships, uh, and it is really important that it's dialogue. It can't be done through email and 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 i was look in my career I've, you go into to sales departments and if it's not noisy if it's quiet and there's just tapping on the keyboards that always is an alarm bell for me because um that's sales people who are communicating primarily through email and i understand yeah. the technology is effective it has a role to play it's it, it's you know for, for mass communication and to transfer materials It's it's very very good but it, it cannot substitute for verbal communication because of it isn't physical. You don't physically talk and that physical action actually has um, a biochemical um, consequence that is very important in the in forming relationships. So that's the first point. And then your, yes, your, your point about to telephone as opposed to video, it's just that the, that the nature of the way the dialogue works tends to tends to be more back and forth um, on the telephone, mm. um, people feel a bit more broadcasty when they're on a video.
0: yeah, that's a really interesting insight you know we were talking before we hit record around you know the the video technology um, you know being a being a forced adaptation and being so accelerated in terms of our adoption of it. Um, and I sort of made the comment a bit facetiously, but I do really agree, or I do really believe, actually, what I was saying that we haven't even really gotten email properly nailed. Like, you know, the amount of um, the amount of unnecessary friction that's caused, and the amount of miscommunication that's caused, and the the different interpretations, um, and just the sheer volume of managing email. Like, I really think. Somebody coming into an organisation and just getting them to use email correctly is a massive area that should be a focus. And yet here we are, layering on some more, some more different types of technology um, and some communication channels that you know we really haven't had the time to actually refine. It's it's very much been we're just in day dot. This is how we we transact. Yeah, it's know.
1: it's interesting. Um, I was I was taught when uh, when I was growing up with with email that um you only use email for to confirm a telephone conversation it it dates me a bit you only use email to, tele, to to confirm a telephone conversation or to uh send out communication to lots of people so if you have to yeah. broadcast to lots of people at the same time otherwise tell use the telephone and um and i think with video calls it's almost the other way around if you have to broadcast to a to a, a lots of people don't use video calls <laughs> In in our in our kind of research, the 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 second most motivating factor in put in disengaging participants in video calls is the number of people on the call, and uh, the first is the, the first, by the way, is the fact that the content isn't relevant to me. So after that, if it's relevant to me, the thing that's going to make me disengage is just having lots of people on the call. And I, I can understand that. I mean, I
0: think you know. If the if the content is really relevant to me, and I've been invited to sit through a you know, and I say sit through, <laughs> even the language I'm using, but if I've been invited to to view a video presentation, um, and it's hyper relevant to me, but there's fifty other people, I'm going to be very reluctant to unmute myself and engage in a dialogue. Two people, three people on the call, I'm probably going to be a little bit more. Um, engaged in just purely in the fact that I'll be I'll be asking questions and I'll be trying to interact. Yeah. Um. And it is really at odds, Dave, with with you know I mean a big part of the media, the media sales market is agencies, and what I think a lot of them are seeing is a massive opportunity with video call to go. Great. We don't have to have you coming in you know, we don't have to have this supplier coming in and seeing seven or eight of our teams individually face-to-face. They can just put an all-staff video call in, they'll give us the update and we'll be back to business. Uh, um, yeah. that, that's a big trend that's happening at the moment. So you're saying that that particular type of format, A, doesn't seem to be particularly good for forging any sort of a relationship or rapport, but also the likelihood is that you've actually got a more disengaged audience the larger the group
1: is yeah it's it's um it's actually something called the Regleman effect which is uh that the more uh every person you add to a task halves the engagement of everyone in the task and yeah. um and you can apply that to this um it's it's a killer right if you've got a if you've got groups who are who are spread in different offices who are not co-located and an agency says oh let's tell you what you can do a national update you haven't got to talk to um Sydney Melbourne Brisbane individually you can do it all on one call or you know um, uh, New York and la individually you can do it all on one call we'll organize something around the time zones then it's a that's an absolute killer um because mm. that might be efficient and the CFO might love you for that but actually um the the disengagement that you'll get from that uh, is, is is really a, a significant um and you made the point earlier about needs discovery uh two-thirds of people that again that we survey admit that they they do not ask things online that they would have brought up in face-to-face meetings yeah um and you've made the point right if you get a you've got a large group it's you know you don't always want to volunteer you don't want to you know you want to prolong the call it's quite awkward you might speak over each other it's you know you've got to come you put yourself off mute and maybe your dog will be barking but you know there's all these different things that are going to put you off and that means you don't get people heard. And that means you don't get a proper and thorough needs discovery. So you don't manage to reflect back exactly what's going on. In the, and you can't. You, you really want to make sure that those processes are done intimately.
0: You know, even just reflecting on what the last year and a half has meant for me, not that I'm sort of out in market selling directly a lot anymore, but certainly I'm finding it very, very difficult to have the level of kind of robust dialogue that... I used to be able to have quite comfortably because I was very attuned to body language in certain scenarios, particularly in a pitch, in a negotiation, in a client discovery. And, you know, just thinking about what you're saying there, I I even think I used to use that as a a technique, not as a technique in terms of it was something I was consciously doing, but if I could feel the gravity in the room shift, if I could feel somebody's body language start to close off, I would just call it out and go, you know, seems to me that something might be a bit uncomfortable here for you or this might be bothering you. Can we just I'd be really interested to understand what's going on and sort of not being afraid to sit in that for a
1: while, but just labeling a situation. Yeah, there's um again, going back to this point about about physical contact, if you've ever stood on stage and done a presentation with lights in your eyes and not being able to see the audience but but you could still feel whether they were leaning in and buying what you were selling or were a little bit resistant to that yeah even though you can't see them but you can still feel them that is the that's the the your your chemical interaction on through through uh the chemical release your pheromone release so it's it's, an, yeah. it's and your, uh, your your sense of smell your olfactory sense plugs directly into your subconscious in a way that your other senses go through analytical centers before they go into your subconscious. So it's much more powerful. So yeah, your sense of being in a room with someone and being able to pick up on the, maybe a change in there, they may have uh, more cortisone, just release their stressing slightly because it's not quite hitting the mark with them. You'll pick that up. You'll pick up that marker. There's a, there's
0: a really good example of that effect that I think we've all lived through. And I mean, maybe this is just my observation, but Let's say you're on a video call with multiple markets and you're all dialing in, you know, maybe you're dialing in from your desktop, um, but but there's a boardroom of people on that video call. So there's seven or eight yeah. people plus in a boardroom and then all the other people are dialed in from their own desktop. Somebody in the boardroom cracks a joke. The boardroom erupts in laughter and everybody else sits there and doesn't get what's so damn funny. <laughs> absolutely right? and and that's happened so many times where i'm like i don't understand why they're all laughing as much at, at this it's it's not particularly funny to me but again it's such a good demonstration of there's such a different experience being in that room it's like seeing a stand up comedian in a in a um a small intimate club versus watching them on tv it's not the same there's the the biochemistry you know of all those people in the room laughing with you creates that kind of social contagion um, and, and like that's the magic of what we do like I'm not saying that we're you know we're performers but there is an element of that kind of that kind of um, dynamic being created in a room and you know when the room's on fire and when you've got a fantastic engaged client um, or a really engaged room you just you, you're right it's intangible you just know it when it's happening
1: I, I don't think you're doing yourself any justice there uh, Jamie I've seen you present it's it's uh, it's, it's showtime. <laughs> no I I I think um... I think you you know you're absolutely spot on and it's you know it's interesting as well if you ever noticed and watch out for this the next time you're on a video call where some where one party as you say is in a boardroom and there's a few of them there there'll be moments where they all look at each other in the boardroom mm. they haven't said anything they just all look instantly look at each other what what is the trigger there something has happened between them that is again unspoken it, it may be something physical maybe someone's shifted their body language it may be someone has said something but Usually they just, they just turn and look at each other It's that same, you know, it's that thing about, um, I feel I'm being watched It's that there are, there are those, as I say, so there's, non nonverbal cues. It's, 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 fascinating. And if you're trying to convince, and of course we're all in the, in the business of change, we're all trying to, to, um, to influence buyers to do, th- do something different than they were doing before. And if you're trying to convince a change and take a risk, you have to make someone feel safe. Uh, and that is very difficult to do if you do not, if you haven't had that physical contact before. It's a topic I think we're going to have to unpack
0: a lot further, but I want to jump into our listener submitted question because this one's particularly um, relevant to yourself.
1: I can't ask
0: my sales manager that. So this one comes from, uh, he's actually submitted a few questions. Um, he's based in Austin, Texas. Uh, and here is the question. Hey, Jamie, uh, I hope this gets on your show. Um, look, I, uh, I heard you had someone on to talk about neuroscience and the sales of client persuasion. I would love to understand more about this as I sell in a pretty competitive marketplace. You know, We, uh, we have a lot of competitors and um, pretty much we're really limited on client opportunity. Uh, there's not a lot of product differentiation. And we all compete on price. So I'm wondering, is there anything that I can do outside of product, price or, or or process that could help give me a competitive edge? So I did share Kinsler with with this person and told him you would be on. Um, and he sort of crafted the question around you know what what his challenge is. but I think he's really getting into this place of going. You know how how outside of kind of all of the things that we all have in our kit bag, how how can I differentiate my sales approach? Any sort of initial thoughts, just reflecting on that. If if this person came to you and engaged your services, what what might be some of the things you'd sort of
1: diagnose? Um,
0: you know, could be helpful here.
1: One of the things that that, that um, drove me into this area um, around Kinsler is um, the rise of sales theory of. 10 or 12 15 years ago which started to to discredit the idea that people by people and relationships are important Ch- challenger theory is probably the most famous of these um that uh, to says everything you knew about sales is wrong it's not about relationships it's all about um being able to educate so um i take issue with the with the first part of that it's it's that is not about relationships. It is absolutely about relationships. They are absolutely the fundamental and uh, prerequisite foundation of every successful transactional relationship. But education is also an important part of, in fact, forming that relationship. So it goes back to that point. if If you're in a commoditized market and you want to stand out and you don't want to go to price, then you have to be the value. You have to be the value. And that makes has to be the differentiating point is you so show uh goes back to this point about of uh, establishing trust and gaining um that the right chemical release from your buyer it's about showing interest in their interest it's about educating them to show that you are uh, you have their interests at heart these these are again evolutionary triggers for us to want to trust and cooperate with someone if they're showing that they have my interests are their interests, and we we we, we have uh, mutually beneficial outcomes. So, um, all the things you you learn in 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 the media sales trade: actively listening, playing back the details of what you hear when you uh, make small talk with someone. Use the you know if they're they're talking about their kids and and where they live, and use use the names of the children you hear. Play back the the um, the suburb that the person lives in. Um, those details will again make someone feel heard valued and therefore relax that little bit more again you get the right hormonal release and that that will make you stand out and so again subconsciously or not they will start to feel as though you are more trustworthy than the other guy Um, and ultimately we can all cite transactions in our lives when we are buyers that we've made because we like the guy selling to us, and where the the the, the, the product is essentially commoditized. You know, frankly, um, you know the financial services the guy was offering. I could get insurance from anyone, <laughs> and it'll probably give me the cover that I need. But I like this guy. It wasn't necessarily the cheapest. It's 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 a lot, I, this guy. I just feel he's going to do what he says on the tin. He's going to he's, he's got a substantiation behind him, and and I, and I can't put my finger on it, but he. I just warmed to him. Somebody said yesterday, actually, uh, th- that they had bought, uh, they put their house on the market with a real estate agent who'd remained in touch with them for the previous two years with just little nuggets of information and education, not necessarily about real estate, but just about, hey, you know, we met the other day. Here's something I thought you might you might enjoy. Little nuggets of information that he had pinned to what he'd learned about this uh, this this seller. And he said when I came to to putting my house on the market, I thought oh, this guy I quite like him. Just gonna give him the business.
0: It's that whole I mean, it's it's a very old theory which um, isn't anything new around, you know, investments in the emotional bank account, but it's it's very true. And you're right, just reflecting on my own choices as as a consumer, you know, I definitely feel feel right about a person or a product and then I somewhat rationalize it to myself after the fact particularly if I'm paying a premium in price um, or if it's a bit harder to get but it's very hard to sometimes articulate what the process is but it's like oh it just doesn't feel right you know like that's a phrase we say and I feel like that actually articulates a lot of the time what is happening when we are thinking of making some sort of purchase or financial transaction is we don't say this doesn't you know, this doesn't line up um, against my specific buying criteria. We go, this doesn't feel like value to me. Yeah. I think that's a a, a fantastic um, insight for this person. And look, I feel their pain, um, but I agree with you. I mean, Chris Winterburn, obviously, um, who we both know, who runs the Media Eye Survey, which is in the Australian market, a, a big national survey between publishers and media agencies to identify how they're working together and to effectively score who's best in class. I mean, he, I don't want to quote him out of context here, but he said on many occasions that, you know, you've got media publishers that have great products, great processes, great resourcing, great client engagement budgets. Um, You know, they spend a lot of money on innovation, a lot of money on all these things. But the single biggest determining factor of if a publisher is going to score well or not is the person that is actually sitting in front of the client. Do they like that person? Do they connect with that person on an emotional level? Do they feel like that person has their back and they can trust that person and they want to do business? So it's it's a point that's probably not to be understated is how important that that actual personal connection is to making this whole system kind of function.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's something that um, will be well advised to a lot of the ad tech and martech vendors who really don't put enough weight on that, and 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 think that their product is is going to do all the work for them. Um, th- don't get me wrong; product is still important. <laughs> you can you can you know, you have to have something substantial to sell. Uh, but um, on its own, it probably won't get the cut through. Yeah, I'd agree.
0: I'd even say
1: to add to that,
0: not to beat up on them, but um, just an understanding of of human psychology to inform the actual adoption. Of people using the tech Um, I mean how many times have we got something that's supposed to have this great capability but it's just completely counterintuitive to use Um, you know it's again I'm sort of rambling here a bit but I agree with you I think I think there's a healthy level of tension that's going to exist between tech and you know this side of of human interaction and psychology but I I do think that um, you're absolutely correct in that there just needs to be a little bit of a closer kind of connection between the two Dave, thank you for your time. Really fascinating sort of area and I, I do wonder if actually we're only skimming the surface of this and we probably would benefit from a follow-up episode um, once we get some feedback from the audience. But I would love if you could indulge us if there is maybe one kind of key takeaway that you might want to leave the audience with that they can apply immediately you know, this
1: week. All around this topic of understanding how clients buy, what might that be? One thing that I would... Um, leave you with is is that um, there's an old saying that trust begets trust and it is actually based in scientific fact you will generate trust if you show trust and so it's very tempting for us as salespeople who want to go in and impress to do the whole chest puffed out um, big I am blow your own horn kind of uh, uh, show up in term- in front of a client if you can actually show that you're human, you're kind, um, you're authentic, you're interested in the other person, do the little things on it. If you on a video call, do a little thing like help them out, <laughs> give them help, help solve a problem for them, um, you know, give them a Netflix recommendation or, you know, a really good walking route. Um, they're little tiny things, but they will, they will mark you out as a problem solver and someone who is, again, is kind interested and willing to give of yourself that has far more weight than a cv worth of you know i did this and i did that and look at me i'm enormous um it's uh, it's te- it, it and it's it's tempting for us to do that because we're salespeople and we want to come across as as being you know impressive and people we want people to be dazzled by us don't try and dazzle try and be kind
0: phenomenal phenomenal thought there to share dave thank you very much how can people get in
1: touch with you and learn a little bit more around what you're doing uh well drop me a line visit uh kinsler.com.au uh, and uh, there are there are ways to get in touch with me uh through that website or drop me a, a line uh jamie i'm sure you'll include my details on the uh, uh the notes for the the podcast i will indeed Yep. Yeah. but um yeah i, I did that that's uh that time's really flown so uh, i've really enjoyed talking to you jamie thanks for having me on
0: Hey, it's been my absolute pleasure, Dave Roddick, and I'd really encourage everybody just jump into the show notes, give Dave a follow on LinkedIn, um, learn more about what these guys are doing, and certainly hit us up if there's there's an area that you thought we could unpack a bit further, or uh, if I was talking too much and I should have just let Dave talk more, give us the feedback. We are here to serve you. But Dave, thanks, mate. Have a fantastic night, and I look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: You too, Jamie. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals. Head to mediasalesmastery.com to help pick the topic, guide the show, and don't forget to subscribe to receive new episodes each week.